Good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church. My name is Jeff Birch, and I'm the pastor here at Lake Oconee. And whether you are in person or watching on the live stream, we offer you a very, very warm welcome. We are thrilled you have chosen to worship with us. Uh, if you're visiting here this morning, we want to, first of all, thank you for visiting, and then also invite you, if you go out after the service, or maybe you already picked this up, uh, in our narthex, we have a bag of what I like to uh, call swag. It's fun stuff. It lets you know a little bit about the church, gives you some information, and it's yours to keep. So help yourself to that. We would invite everyone, if you're on the end of the row, there should be a friendship register there for you to sign in, pass it down. This is for everyone. And so we don't single anybody out. Uh, we just want to get to know you. One of our visions here is to love one another, and a primary way to do that is to build relationships, to build friendships with each other. And so that's the purpose behind that. Immediately following the service, and here's what I mean by immediately, a brief break, okay? We'll stand up, we'll, after the benediction and the postlude, we'll stand up, we'll stretch our legs. If you need to leave, you need to leave, we'll get set up for the Zoom. The live stream will go off. There's a Zoom for any members who are... Uh, at home, but we have a called congregational meeting. The session has called a congregational meeting for church members, and if you're not a church member, you're invited to stay. You can observe and be a part there, but it's for church members to uh, be able. The purpose of the meeting is to consider a motion from the Board of Trustees involving the sale of a parcel of land, and so that will be following this service. You're encouraged to be a part of that. Where is Tommy Evans? Tommy's going to share a brief announcement. Good morning. I want to highlight uh, just one of the announcements that's in the bulletin. That is the session's decision to pause our nursery for a period. Some of the reasons are listed in the bulletin I won't go over all those, but I'll mention a couple. Number one, we've had low utilization rate uh, in the nursery over the past, since, since we restarted in June. I'll update the numbers in the, in the bulletin. Eight out of those 12 Sundays, we have had zero children in the nursery, including with today, the last seven in a row. That's unless somebody has come in in the last minute or so. And during that period of time, we paid two nursery workers. And number two, and more important, Jonna Unger is stepping down as nursery director effective today. She let it be known earlier this year she wanted to step down in mid-May. Mid -May. Our former pastor, Marion Clark, asked her to stay on until the end of May, thinking we would uh, find a replacement that, by then. A full court press uh, was started, led by Marion, to find a replacement. As of now, no one has volunteered to take this position. Jonna has graciously stepped up and continued to serve as nursery director during this period. Jonna has faithfully served with distinction and love for the children that passed through our nursery over the past 10 years. Jonna will be recognized and honored at our morning worship service on a couple of Sundays. 
But for now, Jonna, on behalf of the session and your entire search family, let me say a heartfelt thank you for your service over these past 10 years. Having spent some time talking with her over the last few weeks, I know this was a personal ministry for her. It was a labor of love. We have been blessed to have her as our nursery director for 10 years. So again, thank you, Jonna. Perhaps we will be able to introduce our new nursery director or co-directors at that service when we honor Jonna. John has stepped up again and has agreed to spend time training and getting any volunteers up to speed. So if you have any interest in taking this uh, position, please see Jonna, Pastor Birch, or me at the end of the service. Or call the church office or email the church office and we will get the process started. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tommy and Gianna. I haven't known you all that long, but thank you. Ten years of service is wonderful, and we certainly appreciate and honor your service to the Lord and to this church and to the children of this church. So thank you so much. Absolutely. Praise the Lord. Uh, one other announcement that I want to highlight. We have been speaking about the fundraiser for Sheds of Hope, and that continues for a couple more days. I think I have the calendar right. Where's Dick Forrester? It's not the, uh, is he on this side? What side? Dick, I've got to learn where you stand in the choir and the singing and the praise team and all of that. It's not the 31st of August yet, right? So we still have a few days if you are interested. And uh, if you think about all of the needs, you know, there's this Hurricane Ida that is bearing down on the Gulf Coast and Louisiana, even as we are here worshiping. The need for sheds is probably greater than ever. So if you just think of the practicality of that particular ministry, uh, I remind you, checks, if you're making them, should be made payable to LOPC. Write in the memo line, Sheds of Hope. That must be written in the memo field to let us know. And obviously, that's through the 31st of August. And we rejoice and praise the Lord at the generosity so many have shown in terms of this. So those are some of the things going on in the life of the church. We do, Ra oh, thank you, I do remember, Rachel, we emailed yesterday. Uh, we are having, if you notice, we're doing the, what I'll call recommended and encouraged, not mandated, not required of masks, but in terms of doing that, we are having children's church or children's worship out in the pavilion. So it's outside, obviously masks are not even needed, in terms of that, and so just a reminder that whenever the weather cooperates, children's worship will be down underneath the pavilion. So we wanted to remind parents and children and teachers of that. Rachel, thanks for reminding me. So now I can say, as the prelude is, is played, let's prepare our hearts for worship.
Our call to worship this morning comes from Psalm 111, verses 1 to 3. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. In the company of the upright, in the congregation, great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. Father, we praise you that you have condescended to call us, to desire us, to come into your presence to worship you, to glorify you. May we be a people that gives thanks and acknowledges you with our whole heart, the entirety of our beings, body and soul, every faculty of our being, our mind, our emotions, our will, our affections. Great are the works of the Lord. May we meditate and contemplate and study all of your works, and may we delight in them. We invoke your presence to be with us. We need you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, let's stand together and sing our opening hymn of praise, How Great Thou Art.
morning we are looking at a couple of sections of Scripture, an Old Testament Scripture reading and a New Testament Scripture reading. The Old Testament one is out of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 31, 31 to 34. And then the New Testament reading is from Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 to 14. Friends, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now, how does that occur? Paul explains it to us in Galatians chapter 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. And what motivated God to do this? The depth of his love for us. How deep the Father's love for us. Let's stand and sing.
may be seated. I don't know about you all, but I certainly know that looking out in the world today, I come to worship this morning with my heart heavy over all of the things going on in the world today. And as we go to our time of prayer, both in reciting together the Lord's Prayer, followed by our pastoral prayer, I want to remind us what is our hope in light of everything that we see. Our hope is that it is not death in any of its forms that has the final word, but it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. And that in Revelation chapter 21, we do have this promise of our Lord himself where he says, behold, I am making all things new. I would long for every person to know that promise. And so as we go to the Lord in prayer and as we grieve, lament, and cry out for so many things, may we do so with the assurance of this promise that Jesus will make all things new. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We come before you this morning, Father, heavy-hearted. We come before you longing for the kingdom of God, the promise that, behold, I am making all things new to come in its fullness and its fruition. We come asking this morning for consolation in the face of so much violence, catastrophe, sin, and sorrow. Lord, we lament and we weep over the loss of our Marines, many other lives in Afghanistan. We pray for families. We acknowledge sacrifice. We acknowledge everything that they have given. And Lord, we pray thy kingdom come. Lord, have mercy on our world. We plead with you for the rescue of our troops and others that are still trapped in Afghanistan. We plead, Lord, have mercy. We pray this morning for the Gulf Coast, for Louisiana, for the city of New Orleans as they brace for Hurricane Ida. We pray for protection of life and property. We continue to also remember those in Haiti. We think of the St. Germain family, their ministry, and the long, seemingly impossible road to recovery. We pray for all those affected by COVID. This pandemic has definitely turned the world on its head. 
We pray that we would be more formed and discipled by your word than by news we hear and, or anything else. That, Lord, we would be discipled by your truth that tells us that the greatest command is to love you with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. Lord, our, there is no way that our hope could be that the world is getting better, because it's certainly not, or that we are getting better, because if we're honest, we're not. We still struggle with our sin and our selfishness and our self-centeredness. But your promise is true. Jesus, you have come. You entered the mess of this world. You didn't stay distant. You didn't stay far away. You condescended. You left the comfort zone of heaven and came into this world. Incar God incarnate in the flesh. And we have the hope, a sure and certain hope of this promise that you are coming again. So, Lord, we take comfort, we take solace, we take consolation in the promise that you are making all things new. And we pray that we would be people of the word, people of faith, people of hope, and people of love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
may be seated. As we go to the Lord and his word, let's pray and lift up our hearts to him this morning. Father, may the Holy Spirit be our teacher this morning. From this text in Romans, may we be able and have the ability through the Spirit to examine our hearts. But then we do pray that the eyes of our hearts would be opened, would be enlightened, that we would know the hope to which you have called us, that we would know the glorious inheritance in the saints, that we would know the riches of your grace in Christ. Help us to have ears to hear and a heart to embrace your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, we're continuing to look at Paul's letter to the Romans. We are on chapter 3. And so if you have Bibles or whatever device that you might be using, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. The text says, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. All right, I want you to picture this situation. And who do I pick on if you're a married couple? Guys, I'm going to pick on you for a second. That way, at least I'm in the same boat with you. You know, we're all in this together, guys. Okay? And if you're not married, picture this scenario. Maybe this is a dear friend approaching you. So your spouse approaches you or a dear friend approaches you, and they say, we have to have a talk. That always, that, that, that usually, you know, you're kind of like, uh-oh. You love when, that, when that's the lead. We have to have a talk. And your spouse, your, your wife says to you, I really wish you were more sensitive. I wish, loving that, aren't you? I wish you would listen more. I wish you'd do that. Now, I don't know how you respond on the outside. And we're not going to go through all of that, okay? We're not going to go through all the potential responses. But I have a sneaking feeling I know what's going on on the inside. And remember, even in my prayer, I said, we have to ask the Spirit to search our hearts. Remember, that's the uncomfortable part of the sermon, where you're asking the Spirit to search your hearts. Inside, what are you doing? You're probably saying, do you not see everything I do for you? How hard I work? How hard I try? Do you not see how I'll, everything I'm putting forth? And then... Now, you may not say, if you're having a good day and you're feeling really sanctified, you don't say those things. If the flesh is really operative, you say those things. God knows what you're thinking, by the way. 
And then you go and you're, you kind of you cool off and you do this. And what's the next thing that maybe you go? Why bother? Why do I even try? I give up. It's not worth it. I'm done. Now, anybody? Am I the only one that's been through that? Anybody else share that? Come on. You all have been married long enough. You know. There we go. Good Presbyterians. Some of us are going, hmm. <laughs> I have a thesis with that. Now we're going to dig a little deeper. Here's the thesis behind that. The problem of justification is the problem of life. And as I just illustrated, it's not just a theological problem. It is the problem that causes breakdown in all of our relationships. In other words, this fundamentally theological problem has far-reaching tentacles. They reach across all areas of life. Just to bring another scripture into it, think about the Apostle James and what he said when he puts it right out there and he says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so what do you do? You murder. And we know murder is not always the physical act. Have we read the Sermon on the Mount before? You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive. Why? Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Clearly, James is talking about breakdowns in interpersonal relationships. He mentions fights and quarrels. And who's he speaking to? The church. Apparently, fights and I know this may be shocking to some of you, but fights and quarrels even occur within the church. You want to know why? Because we all have a fundamental problem with the issue of justification, and specifically self-justification. The root cause is the same. We want to prove ourselves. We want to be right. We want to prove our worth. We want to validate ourselves. We want to vindicate ourselves. We are fundamental, fundamentally, I don't care how you come across, how together you come across, we are all fundamentally insecure and defensive. See, I illustrated this before. How do we typically react when we're challenged about something or questioned about something? What is our typical reaction? You know, in the scenario I painted, I know I rarely sit there and go, that's a good point. Thanks for pointing that out. I really appreciate the criticism. You know, when I woke up this morning, you want to know what I prayed for? That I would be criticized today. That's just what I love. I go, I go to get my coffee, get breakfast, and say, I want some good, healthy criticism. Now, see, we're all laughing because we all struggle with that, and we all struggle with that because of the issue of self-justification. Now, let me show it to you from the text. I'm on a roll. We're doing another two-point sermon this morning. I, will pro I promise at some point in time we'll get back to maybe three. I may even surprise you and do a four-point sermon someday. But from the text, we're going to look at this issue from two perspectives. And it's, again, 
I'm trying to be real simple for you note takers. Two points, the problem of self-justification and God's solution to justification. Problem and solution. Okay, look with me at verses 1 and 2. Okay? Verses 1 and 2 begin, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Now, we have to remember, you know, I'm sure even as I was reading this, you were going, what in the world does this mean? I can't wait till Jeff explains this text. Well, you've got to see this text in its overall context. And the context, this section of Romans, goes from Romans chapter 1, verse 18, to Romans chapter 3, verse 20. That's the whole context here. And what Paul is demonstrating and arguing, his overall thesis is that all people, Jews and Gentiles alike, are in the same boat, the same position before God. Next week, when we look at the end of this section, verses 9 through 20, he's going to state it very explicitly and very directly. He's going to go, all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. The conclusion of his argument. And if you remember, at the end of chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, he demonstrated it with Gentiles. He said they're under the wrath of God and his judgment is on display through their immorality, their paganism, basically living a life completely disassociated from God. Very easy to see. Sex, drugs, rock and roll. The world today, right? We can easily see. That's easy to see unrighteousness and the wrath of God. But then he turns in chapter 2, and he says, huh, I have people sitting in church with me. And guess what? They're in the same boat with the pagans out there. Paul makes the point that the religious also, the Jewish people, are under the judgment of God. And he begins to challenge them. And he's doing so to point out their and our desperate need for the gospel for grace, that self-help does not exist in the Bible. God doesn't help those who help themselves. Salvation is a gift of grace. Do you know what we contribute to it? Nothing. As a matter of fact, less than, because you know what we contribute to our salvation? Our sin. All we bring is our need. So now in chapter 3, here's what you get when someone is questioned or challenged. Isn't it amazing how all human beings are basically the same? The self-justification begins. In these eight verses, Paul is dealing with a series of objections to his basic position and argument. So in verse 1, you've got this so-called objector basically saying, well, Paul, if I'm in the same boat with those irreligious, pagan people, those people who are sexually immoral, all those people, there's no advantage whatsoever to my being ethnically Jewish. There's no advantage to my coming to church every Sunday. There's no advantage to my being a good, upstanding, upright person. There is no advantage to that. What is the value? Another one, in other words, what's he doing? He's justifying himself. He's defensive. He's taking it as criticism. And he's basically going, if my being good and upright doesn't get me anywhere, why do I bother? 
He's basically justifying himself. But now, look at Paul's answer. Paul's got to knock his socks off here a little bit because this surprises him with his answer. He, what advantage is it of being Jewish? Paul says, much in every way. There's great advantage. He says, even though you're not immune to judgment because of your heritage, there is much to your heritage and background. You have enormous privileges to being Jewish. You have, you've been entrusted with the very oracles of God. You've been entrusted with the very word of God. In other words, the story of God has been entrusted to you to embody and carry to the world. You are God's messengers to be a light to the nations. See, the crucial or the central point in this whole paragraph is simply this. Israel's faithlessness cannot nullify God's faithfulness. Israel's failure to carry out the divine commission leads to the question, is God still faithful to his covenant? What will God do now? See, I just illustrated what we do. You know, if we're honest, we do this. We self-justify all the time. We don't listen to somebody else's position. We get defensive and insecure. But look at what our friend here in verse 1 does. He does like we would do. He takes the self-justification and he ratches it up a notch. He takes it to the next level. Because what does he say? He goes on the attack. Well, what if some were unfaithful? You're saying that? Okay. Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? What does Paul say? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words. He's quoting out of Psalm 51 here. And prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous? to inflict wrath on us? And again, he says, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. See, what is the basic objection that he is raising? He says, well, okay, what if some were unfaithful? In other words, okay, what if we sinned? What if we failed to carry out the, the job, the vocation, the commission you gave us? Then does our unfaithfulness nullify your faithfulness? So God's not faithful. He's not righteous. He's not just. He's not true. He's on the attack. In other words, what is the objector doing? He's taking a position opposite to Paul's. But listen to how one commentator, a man by the name of Douglas Moo, puts it. He says, this Jewish objector is wondering how God can be righteous when he judges the sins of the Jews. Paul seems to be grappling here with the common Jewish belief that God's righteousness, his covenant faithfulness, gave the Jews virtual immunity from judgment. In response, Paul affirms that the marvelous blessing of knowing God's word is a double-edged sword. For God's word promises blessings for obedience, but it also warns about the curse that will fall on disobedience. 
God remains faithful and righteous in all his doings. But Jews must understand that the ultimate standard of righteousness is God's own holy character. And that holy character requires him to respond to sin with judgment. Remember what this is. The entirety, the thesis of the letter, is the, re- the gospel is the revelation of God's righteousness. God's righteousness is being put on display. And part of God's righteousness is dealing with sin. That means judgment and justice is part of God's righteousness. So in other words, the nature of God's covenant, and this means this is part of what Paul, that's why I called it the problem of justification. Because the nature of God's covenant and for God to be faithful to himself, in other words, for God to be God, he must judge. This is what it means to be in a covenant relationship with God. It means, by definition, both blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. And friends, if we're honest, we know that intuitively. That's why we defend ourselves so much. We know intuitively if we admit we did wrong, if we admit we're flawed, if we admit there's something wrong with us, that the problem in the world, guess what, might be us? Where does that leave us? What is the solution? See, how does God solve this? Remember I said the central thesis of this text is, what does God do now? If the doctor, Israel was supposed to be the means. God's always the healer, but he uses means. And if Israel was to be the means of solving the problem of the world, in other words, carrying the message of God, being a light to the nations, and bringing the message of salvation to the world, if the doctor who's supposed to be bringing the healing is sick himself, what happens then? We need to know what God does now. I want you to hear from Douglas Moo again. He says, the gospel in no way cancels Israel's prerogatives. But Paul insists we must rightly understand those prerogatives. Being entrusted with God's word has never meant that Israel is immune from judgment. In fact, that very word promises judgment for disobedience. Such a judgment, in Paul's view, has now taken place. God has brought his curses down on Israel and in keeping with prophetic voices within the Old Testament itself. Voices like we read earlier in our scripture reading from Jeremiah chapter 31. The old covenant needs to be replaced with a new one. And so to quote from another commentator, if God is to be true to his character, that's the title of the sermon, is God faithful? In other words, is God true to himself. And we're all going to nod our heads immediately and go, of course so. But do we ever think through, how? How is he faithful to himself? How is he going to do this? If God is to be true to his character, if the promises are to be fulfilled, what is needed is a faithful Israelite who will act on behalf of and in the place of 
faithless Israel. The exact thing Paul, once we get to the end of chapter 3, is going to argue explicitly he is now hinting at in this text. What is needed is a faithful Israelite. See, we have to realize this is one of the tricky parts, so to speak, of interpreting the scriptures. When Israel is referred to in the Bible, there's actually three different applications of it. In other words, there's original Israel, the nation, the country. There is Jesus, who is the faithful Israelite. And we're going to show exactly how faithful he is in just a second. And then there are all those Jews and Gentiles alike who are in Jesus, the seed of Israel, the seed of Jesus, made up of Jews and Gentiles who are united to Jesus Christ so that everything Jesus accomplishes becomes true of us. That we can receive the benefits with God being faithful to his covenant and faithful to himself. See, God is faithful. He's faithful to his covenant. His covenant says there must be blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. And we end up in this defensive self-justification because we know there's curses for disobedience. So if we're charged with some sort of disobedience, we're like, oh, I can't go there. It's got to be somebody else's fault. I'm doing the best I can. That's where these things have tentacles. Instead of our receiving, living out of, and appropriating grace. Because what did Jesus do? Jesus accomplished and fulfilled, and this is why it's called a new covenant. He fulfilled the covenant both in its blessings and its curses. Listen to how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. One of the most amazing verses in Scripture. I would encourage you to memorize this verse. Uh-oh. Now I'm stepping on to Now I'm getting personal. I'm asking you to memorize Scripture. But 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him, the him being Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now we need to read that as that is the fulfilling of the covenant. That is God being God, fulfilling the covenant. That is the faithfulness of God. And I want you to notice something. It doesn't just say he was punished for sin, but God made him to be sin. See, it doesn't mean that he was just cursed. It means he became a curse. That means he was punished. He received and got a terrible punish. This is covenantal language. The curse is always loss of relationship. I want to read two a little bit lengthy quotes from Tim Keller just to bring this home. I'm not even sure where I got these quotes from Tim Keller. He says it in some place, but I know they're not mine, so I'll attribute it to him. He says, and now you know what happened to Jesus Christ on the cross. See, Jesus Christ, his curse was not just the holes in his hands, but the hole in his heart where God used to be. The level of pain and the loss of relationship completely depends on the level of the relationship. 
When an acquaintance says, I hate you, it doesn't hurt as bad as when a friend says, I hate you. And that doesn't hurt as bad as when your best friend says, I hate you. And that doesn't hurt as bad as when your parents say, I hate you. And that doesn't hurt as bad as when your spouse says, I hate you. Don't you see? When you get into the relationship between the father and the son, we are way beyond even our imagination. This is far worse than any physical pain. And he goes on to say, if this is true, that he became sin, a curse, then that means you also get the blessing. This is more than forgiveness. How did it happen? How do you get the blessing? The cross. Jesus not just getting cursed, but becoming a curse. Because his becoming a curse demonstrates the principle of substitution. Jesus became sin so that you could become the righteousness of God. That means the minute you become a Christian, you don't just get forgiveness, you get treated as if you were him. Think about that. If we really believe that, would we ever need to justify ourselves? We are turning down his righteousness for our putrid righteousness? We are treated by God as if we were just as righteous, just as devoted, just as loving, just as holy, just as beautiful as Jesus is. Dr. Keller goes on, he says, Jesus gets treated as if he were you. He gets treated as if he were the defensive one. He were the lustful one. He were the selfish one. He were the self-obsessed one. And we get treated as if we were him. Oh, the magnitude of grace. Oh, if we would just understand grace a little bit. Do you not see that that is our biggest need in life, to understand grace? On the cross, the thing that happened was he was treated legally as sin, and that means when you become a Christian, you don't just get forgiveness, you are put beyond probation. You are not only not condemned, there is therefore now no condemnation. If we believe that, somebody could come up to us, share with us how, not just what we intend, but how we impact them. Do you know the relational implications this can have? If we would appropriate grace, we don't need to be insecure. We have the righteousness of Christ. We don't need to be defensive. We have the righteousness of Christ. And friends, that is God's solution. Is God faithful? You better believe he is faithful. He is faithful to his covenant. Let's pray. Lord, even as I preach this, there's a part of me that's going, this is too good to be true. I stand amazed at it. And yet, Father, this is your word. This is the foundation upon which we stake our lives and we stand. This is why we can pray with hope and with assurance. And I would just pray that we would understand a little bit your grace and understand the gospel and be willing to connect the dots to applications in our lives and relationships. I pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen. Let's stand and sing together that great hymn of the faith, How Firm a Foundation. reminder that uh, in just a few moments following the benediction and the postlude, we will be beginning right here uh, our congregational meeting. And now friends, receive the Lord's benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Thank you.